martial law, and the crimes of the Marcos family. Just as a note for our listeners, this segment briefly pertains to illegal detainment, assault, and murder. Please be advised, and if you'd like to skip this portion, you can move forward to around the two-minute mark. Thank you for your understanding. Liliosa Hilao was a student activist who was illegally detained, assaulted, and murdered under police custody during martial law. After the People Power Revolution of 1986 and the overthrowing of President Marcos, there were several lawsuits filed against the president for torture. Among these lawsuits was one filed by a relative of Hilao. In 1996, the Court of Appeals in Southern California ultimately ruled in favor of Hilao. The court charged almost $2 billion to the Marcos family for the damages caused to almost 10,000 human rights victims. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit has upheld a $354 million contempt judgment arising from a human rights case against the estate of the late Philippine president, while the 1992 case was against Ferdinand Marcos, the 2011 judgment was against Imelda and Bongbong Marcos personally. The judgment also effectively barred Imelda and Bongbong from entering any U.S. territory. And that was Martial Law and the Crimes of the Marcos Family. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul Episode 22 Digmaan Part 2 Oh, I don't know when I started noticing that people lacked a nod. The gardener I had never met him in person, so I thought maybe it was just like that. Colin had stopped being a pain. But I thought this was his way of growing up. Like we were doing. About time. And he seemed to be staying home more. Doing work in his parents' garden. Tending to the weeds. The shopkeep. Who hated me and Laurie ever since she stole sweets from his store. And he couldn't prove it greeted me like a valued customer when I came to pick up some of my mother's groceries. Always glad to have you, Laney, he said, smiling under his bushy moustache. In my mind, just because he could see how adult I was, how responsible I was becoming, it was my dream after my mom set me straight 
to be self-reliant, reliable. Have my brother come home to a laney that ran the house fine even while he was away. I remember one night when I heard a wailing from the window. It was Mr. Jonathan, who ran the bakery with his wife Lucille. My dad went out to see what had him so distressed, and I slipped out into the garden to listen to what they were saying round the fence. Lucille, he said, seemed the night before. She'd gone away, and he'd searched for her till dawn with the help of his neighbours and one of the local constabulary. When he came home at sunup, Lucille greeted him at the door, looking worried but no worse for wear. But it wasn't, he claimed now, hands trembling as he held my dad by his shoulders. It wasn't her. It wasn't his Lucille that came back in the night. My dad tried to calm him down, but he was reticent. I knew Miss Jonathan. He and my dad drank together. But he seemed sober now, angry and afraid, and convinced of his own mad ramblings. <laughs> mad at the time, anyway. He would not go home to the thing that had his wife's face, he said. Said he dispatched it before coming to see my da. To my father's credit, he was calm when he said he'd help. Came walking round the front of the house. Spotted me listening behind the fence. Told me to call the police. When they arrived, Mr. Jonathan had gone quiet. Calm in his own way. Other officers had been dispatched to his home to check on his wife. To see if his claims were true. They waited for the news at our house. I saw it when the car pulled up. And Lucille stepped out. Her hair was dishevelled and she wrapped her arms around herself. Coat tied tight. To hide the nightdress underneath. But otherwise. Looking unharmed. Her smile was gentle when she greeted her husband. Even when he flinched away from her touch. She said her husband had not slept well that night. Was having terrible nightmares. We were, all of us, inclined to believe the steady woman in the face of her troubled husband. Her husband, in turn, kept insisting he had shot her dead in their house. That this thing that stood before them was not his wife, but a creature that had taken her face and would not die. Look at her stomach, I remember him whispering. Full of buckshot if you look. He refused to go home with her. Preferred even to stay the night in the jail cell while they investigated what was ailing the poor man. I heard from my father that the doctor himself had come to visit. Heard what happened. Claimed experience with the matters of neuroses. From the perspective of a surgeon who had worked with the human brain. I was sure the doctor could help. Knowing their expertise. And certainly, 
the man seemed soothed that of visiting with the doctor for his ailment, returning to his wife without much of a fuss not two days later. I forgot about it fairly quickly. In the end, I had more important things to be worrying about. We received word from the city that someone needed to come down to retrieve some things sent from the front. For my brother. We weren't sure what it meant, but I remember the night I argued for my parents to let me go, since they were too busy with work to take the time out. When they agreed, it felt like I had stepped truly into overhood for the first time, that my parents would trust me with such a thing. Even though we weren't speaking as often as before, I waited for Laurie outside the doctor's cottage and told her the news as soon as she walked out the door. She looked pleased to see me, and smiled bright as the sun when I told her of my coming trip. I asked her if she'd come with me. I knew my parents wouldn't mind me having company, and she seemed just as eager to go, but she apologized. Told me she was finishing some preparations for the doctor's surprise, and would be too busy. She seemed truly remorseful, and I remember half-joking she could put it off. Come with me instead. Spend a couple of days in the city away from it all. She shook her head, but gave me a soft kiss and a genuine smile, and she refused. I made her promise not to surprise the town without me, and she vowed it. My hand held tightly in hers, and off I went into the city. I think. Yes. Those were the last days I ever felt happy. Even if I couldn't tell you what I saw in the city. Not anymore. My memory is all eaten up now. I picked my brother's package up on the first day and found a handful of his letters from the front, as well as some of the belongings he thought he wouldn't be able to care for. Wanted them safe, he said. Told me I could wear some of his clothes if I wanted, but... They better not be scratched up when he came back for them. Or else he'd knock me around so hard my ears would bring for years. I took the next two days to explore the city, though not as much as I'd like. It frightened me how many people there were, and construction everywhere. But that hasn't changed, not in decades. I was about to make my way back on the third day when I received word that there was another letter from the front, addressed to our family. I had to rush back to the post office to fetch it before I missed my train. Toronto may have been bustling, but the world had gone silent all around me. I still remember every moment of the train ride home. Isn't that funny? All I did was look down at my hands the whole time. Oh, how I'd longed to be seen as a responsible adult in my parents' eyes. And now, I was a little woman who would bring them news of their son's death. Along with all the little things you would never be coming back for. The grief of losing my brother, 
You'd think it'd pale in comparison to losing everyone I'd ever known in Hyde. After the fire. But I remember it so clearly. Maybe because it was the only loss I was allowed to grieve. Maybe because I feared bringing that lost swept family I had left. <sighs> Not that it mattered in the end. When I came home, the first one to greet me at the station was Laurie. She'd been waiting for me, radiant smile wide as she helped take one of my bags. Said that her prize was ready, that she'd waited for me to come home before showing it off. It's for you after all, was what she'd said. I remember. I told her I couldn't in good conscience ruin her surprise. Told her of my brother, the news I would have to bring to my parents. She looked sad for me, but the grief seemed not to touch her eyes at all. Like it washed over her, where it drenched me down to the bone. Maybe this surprise will cheer you up, she'd said. So callous, so coldly flippant. At least I felt it was, for what I'd gone through, for the anxiety I felt coming home. I yanked my bag out of her hands and made my way home, enraged. The rage, at least, powered me through to my own doorstep. I was so tired. My parents were smiling when they greeted me at the door. I set them down at the dinner table and told them the news. That their son was dead. And that I had all the things he had sent home. His remains wouldn't be coming back, they said. His personal effects, maybe. Another trip to the city. Or they would send it straight to Hyde. I expected crying. Even screaming. I could see it in my mind's eye. My mother weeping into my sobbing father's arms. As they tried to hold each other together. But I got none of that. I looked into their eyes and they looked sad for me. I remember my dad's steady hand on my shoulder. My mom hugging me tight. But to grief, it, it didn't reach their eyes. <laughs> I don't remember what I said, if I said anything at all. Maybe I should have. After all, it was the last time I'd ever see them. But I remembered what Mr. Jonathan had said. I remembered his fear, his rage, and felt it in me. In that moment, I knew these people were not my parents. So I ran. I didn't know where to go. Find my real parents? Call for help? I was confused, terrified, when I saw Laurie turn in the corner and run up to me, looking genuinely worried. I must have looked aside, 
and she took me by the arm and led me away. It was such a comforting feeling. I felt so lost, so unmoored, and here she was, an anchor. She brought me not to her own house, but to the doctor's. At that point, I had nothing in my head at all. I think I was in shock. When she sat me down on the doctor's soft, expensive couch, she said some things that made no sense to me at the time. Even now, I'm not entirely sure what she meant by them. She said that she wanted to surprise me. That she took care of everything. I remember asking her what a doctor was. In the city, she said. They trusted her to make preparations on her own. Someone else poured tea for us both. And I nearly dropped my cup when I looked up and saw Father Mallory. Giving me a wan but kindly smile. It was a smile I'd never seen. Replacing the sneer or frown of judgment that the father had been known for. He said nothing at all, but he stared at me for so long I felt uneasy, until Laurie shooed him away like she was the mistress of the house, and he was some kind of servant. Just like I'd fall into a dream, like Alice in Wonderland, where a priest was a manservant and my best friend was a queen. I wanted Laurie to explain, and in some ways, she did. She sat beside me and said she was sorry about my brother. That she wished she had been there so she could preserve him, too. She said the doctor had taught her how. Said that magic was real. I couldn't make sense of it, so she showed me. Father Mallory departed the room, then returned with a kitchen knife. Just like I was watching from outside my own body. When I took the knife and plunged it into his own leg. Straight through the flesh. I could still hear it in my head. The sound of a sharp knife penetrating sinew and meat. And Laurie's lovely laugh. You see? He doesn't hurt. None of them do. And he's so much nicer now. Sweeter. One of the doctor's favorites, too. He's exactly how they wanted him to be, she said. Running a single delicate finger down one of his cheeks. Father Mallory smiled again and opened his mouth to speak. He began reciting a prayer from the Bible, tipping his head with a benevolent smile. He was one of the earlier ones, Laurie said. Wasn't quite right yet, but nobody really minded so long as he could speak the gospel and listen to confessions. That's how he knew who to help next. It's like a dance. One misstep and it might all come toppling down. Almost did with Mr. Jonathan, but we were lucky. The doctor helped him too. If 
before it got too out of hand. For a long time, I thought it might have been shock. The reason I didn't run. Nowadays, I recognize the feeling of a good few anesthetics mixed in with a tea I couldn't taste. I was near asleep in minutes, even after all I'd witnessed. The last thing I remember of that night was Father Mallory carrying me to a familiar guest bed, and Laurie kissing me gently as I drifted to sleep. I came in and out of it for I don't know how long. If it was hours or days, I remember snippets, conversations. Sometimes, Laurie would feed me. Sometimes it was Father Mallory. At one point it was even Miss Lucille, her voice soothing as always. What I do remember from all those times was the little girl ragdolls, always leaned against each other on the bedside table. I never struggled, never fought, just like I was already dead. At one point, I even asked Laura if she could ask my parents to come see me. And she told me they would. She promised me they would. But the very same day, the doctor came back. The front door slamming hard startled me awake, even in the haze of anesthetic. I remember them shouting something about making a move. Something about an enemy. I slumped out of bed, crawled to the door to listen, cracked it open just a bit, and on the other side heard them talking about leaving Hyde. Everyone. I hurried back to my bed when I heard someone coming my way. Father Mallory came in with my food, and instead of feeding me like before, he left. Called away by the doctor's familiar voice, barking orders. So strange, for a voice I remembered as gentle. As thirsty as I was, as hungry as I'd become, I instead hid the food and drink away under my bed. Waited for someone to check on me. For a long time, nobody did. And I felt myself becoming more and more alert. I slipped out of bed and out the room when I couldn't hear anyone rushing up and down the hall. I ran, barefoot, to the end of the hall, to the door that led to the basement. I groped my way to the darkness, to the very bottom, where the door I expected to bar my way was open. Sometimes I wish I'd never gone down there. But then, if I hadn't, I'd have been left wondering forever. Mad not for seeing, but for never knowing the truth. Not that I know what I saw, not really. The room was dark and the shadows from the meager lights were long along the floor. Puppets. I thought at first, 
hanging from piano wire strings, parts strewn across tables. It was cold, so I didn't notice the smell. Not until I was close enough to touch, and I felt the soft give of flesh, where I thought there would be wood. The clatter in the fallen tools, the sound of footsteps running down. I crawled into the nearest hiding place, a cupboard near the floor, just small enough to curl into. The last thing I remember hearing was Laurie screaming my name, searching for me. I covered my ears and blocked her out, blocked it all out, until it was all just noise. Just a buzzing in my ears, while tears run down my cheeks. When I next woke up, I smelled smoke, fire. I ran up the stairs. The smoke nearly choked me. Everything was burning. I ran out into town. The tops of every house was on fire. An uncontrolled inferno, jumping from house to house in a way I'd never seen. Unnatural. I ran home. I didn't know where else to go. I called for my parents, but nobody was home. I ran inside and found nothing. I curled up under the kitchen table, where I last saw them, and cried just as the fire began to engulf the rooftop, burned through the rafters until the entire thing collapsed on top of me. I was ready to die. I've been wanting to die ever since. Unfortunately, these doctors have done a fine job keeping me alive and kicking. You'd think they'd have given up by now. I've given it a lot of thought since then. Father Mallory. Miss Lucille. Stomach full of buckshot, at least according to her husband. The things I saw in that basement. The emptiness in my parents' eyes. None of them were real anymore. They were just... Dead things, disguised as the living. Dolls, puppets, and the doctor their master. I think she loved me, and I knew that the doctor loved her. Like a daughter, maybe like the doctor they always wanted. I don't know if they wanted me to, or if Laurie wanted to keep me, and they were just indulging her. Either way, I was Hyde's only survivor, and I know nobody was left in the town when it burned. Hundreds of people vanished without a trace. I hadn't quite known the extent to which Drosselmeyer had gathered power 
until I saw the quaint little town of Hyde burning from elder spells, with a benefactor telling us this was where he tracked Drosselmeyer's movements. It was their hiding place, he said, for their... experiments, akin to that which they inflicted upon Petter, where they mastered a spell that would put all of the Ordo at risk. My Giuliano had mastered a spell of his own, his specialty that he's been able to use even now, shadow-stepping, able to move quickly between spaces so long as he can picture it in his mind or see it right before him. I stood atop a nearby hill alongside the benefactor's allies while Giuliano walked the burning streets of Hyde. He reported back a disturbing lack of bodies, an empty town where there were once hundreds. It seemed to confirm the benefactor's suspicions, and we learned that Drosselmeyer, living up to their puppet master name, had turned all of Hyde into their very own army and had fled to the forest's north. We could not let them be in case they did something worse. I didn't share the man's apparent bleeding heart for the people of Hyde, but I knew that hundreds dead was a power source that could not be understated. I was ready to do what I could, fight how I could. But the benefactor surprised me when he said he had another task in mind for my expertise. Giuliano refused to leave my side when the benefactor and his right hand, Richard Henry, led us to what appeared to be a system of tunnels beneath the earth, too pristine to be meant for sewage and absent any tracks for subways. We found ourselves underneath an enormous concrete dome, in the center of which was... a machine. I didn't realize it at first until I stepped back to take it all in, what the machine was. Or at least, what it looked like. A giant gilded head laying on its side, part of it unfinished, exposing clockwork mechanisms. A much older yet clearly effective system with one gigantic empty eye allowing entry into the head. Inside I could feel the uncomfortable crackle of powerful yet dormant magic. Before me were three rings of gold affixed to one another, meant to spin in place and form an orbit around the center. Like Gemma's rings, but carved instead with familiar runes of magic. I recognized the writing from Savard's notes. This machine was his somehow, hidden away where nobody would ever find it. Except, it seemed, his surviving right hands. The benefactor asked me to make it work. Richard Henry explained, nobody but Savard knew how this machine could turn on, as it were, and even he seemed unable to do it more than once. I could see that there were signs of use, and all of us could feel the magic charge in the air, like a storm that had not yet formed in the sky. I said I would study it, do my best. Giuliano didn't want to leave me alone, but he was more useful out there than he was keeping watch over me, and we both knew it. Now that he knew the lay of the place, he could come back any time, assure himself I was all right and keep me appraised of the situation on the front. Everything I describe of what happened in their war comes from Giuliano. I only ever saw parts of the battle, and its aftermath. For example, it seemed as though they'd found the puppet master hiding dangerously close to the Wahila territory, and had clashed with the people of Hyde in the dense forest. 
20 elders of the original Ordo allied with a benefactor, along with dozens more they had taken into the fold and taught the basics of our magic. The benefactor apparently lived up to his name, bringing in those who wanted the gift of long life and power the way we'd been blessed. Though they bore magic, even the most basic of spells, they soon learned that their usual methods would not work against an army like this. The dead do not feel pain, and so spells of agony did not even stagger them. They bled as much sawdust as real blood when they were cut, and even as they burned, they marched on, overwhelming the unlucky and stupid elders who were caught unawares. This proved the fatal error on our contingent. We lost only two that night, and yet, the next night, those two returned, still able to perform the spells they knew in life, still able to cast spells of fire and cutting air no longer as easily felled as they had been. It was clear to all of us, then. Death was indeed no obstacle to this puppet master, and every elder death would simply add to the enemy's numbers. Juliana would report these losses to me in exhaustion, and I could only stew in frustration, knowing my martial prowess in magic was piddling compared to what help I could provide in getting this secret weapon of Savard's up and running. There was something missing, I knew. All the parts were there, and it could work, but there was something that it needed. A power source, perhaps. Fuel. I tested it with a focus that had recently taken the life of a vagabond in a city alleyway. A piece I'd been keeping on hand, just in case. It was like using a battery to power a house. It responded long enough for the rings to begin slowly spinning, but it wasn't enough. One human fear death which kept us young and powerful, was not enough for this machine. It was a breakthrough, but only so much. In the meantime, Giuliano had his own breakthrough, using his shadow-stepping to gather intel. I appreciated the benefactor's prudence when Giuliano offered to infiltrate the enemy's base and slit their throat in their sleep, presuming they slept at all. He told Giuliano he shouldn't risk Drosselmeyer's defenses, only observe from as close as he could get without tripping whatever alarms the puppet master had set up. I agreed wholeheartedly, smacked Giuliano round the head for even considering something so risky. So he respected both our wishes and stalked the shadows of the forest, finding a vantage point from which to observe Drosselmeyer's camp. In the second week, he made an important discovery, more so than we realized even then. There was another in Drosselmeyer's camp, one that was not dead, not a servant of the puppet master's will. A girl, no older than fifteen, with dark hair and straight white teeth when she smiled, the puppet master putting a hand on her shoulder and smiling benevolently down at her, like a parent with her child. She had magic, but she wasn't like Drosselmeyer, who knew their spells by the rough informal study of the knowledge they gained through Petter. It seemed like she had an aptitude for magic, like she had even just a little of it long before she came under Drosselmeyer's tutelage, for it was her magic that Giuliano could sense more strongly than even the puppet master, even when they were clearly the one <laughs> pulling the strings, as it were. I had no context for it then, but if she was like your Mari, or even your partner's guru, a nascent connection to magic that made her catch on to Drosselmeyer's process faster than any of us ever could. I don't know if Drosselmeyer even knew what they had in their possession. 
as far as Giuliano could tell, they simply loved the child like their own. It was a dangerous gamble, but with that knowledge in mind, Giuliano was given a mission. It was one I never would have agreed to if I'd known. But I was busy chipping away at that strange machine, even as another battle raged on, turning a forest into a clearing and leaving bodies charred and melted down to wood and bone, for that was the only way we could stop the onslaught of unfeeling bodies. In the confusion of the battle, Giuliano was able to strike from the shadows and take the child from the battlefield. He'd knocked her unconscious, and on the battlefield, dozens fell, powered by her will. He brought her before the benefactor, and Richard Henry chained her, ensuring she could not escape. Her power was of interest to all of us, but not something we fully understood. All this I only know from Giuliano, but he said as she awoke, thrashing about in her bonds and spat curses so vile even the unflappable Richard Henry was affected, to hear them come from such a young, sweet-looking girl. And their bonds, both physical and magical, failed. A blast of magic upended their camp, fire, ice, and shaking earth in rapid succession, a display of raw magic that no elder could match. Giuliano acted before he could think, or so he told me. He had been struck in the head, and I remembered the bleeding, the scar it would eventually leave. He came up behind her and transported them both away. On instinct, it seemed the place he chose was where I was, in the machine that was meant to be our weapon to end our little war. My binding magic was just a little stronger than Richard Henry's, and so I bound her without a second thought when my husband called for my aid, slapped a gag over her mouth for good measure so she wouldn't cast verbal spells. I didn't know the nature of her power, so I thought this was enough. As I tended to my injured husband, I didn't see her fingers moving, like she was moving marionette strings. My magic was dismantled while I was preoccupied, and I felt it come over me in a moment. Suddenly I had forgotten how to breathe, and my body was no longer my own. My mind rebelled, but I could not reclaim my will. My eyes began to dim, and I, I do believe I would have died quite painfully in that moment. Based on what the puppet master did to their enemies, I wasn't sure I'd come back the same. Then, suddenly, I could move again. I could breathe again. And she could not. Not through the blood. Not when my husband had thrown a knife that cut her throat spilling crimson all over the ground. Now that, I know, was a slow death. And as this little girl lay dying, choking in her own blood, Sovard's machine came to life. I watched the ring spin and bade Giuliano fetch our fearless leader. It was only a few minutes, but it felt like hours when he returned, benefactor in tow. They were both bathed in blood, though I suspected not their own, and by then I could only spare them a moment's glass as I recorded my findings. The spinning rings created what looked to me a tear in the fabric of reality, through which a sort of radiation slipped through. Magic that felt like it would burn my skin off if I got too close. It might be familiar to Mari, 
for its energies were similar to one in the hellmouth my own machine keeps contained. The benefactor, I remember, looked enthralled by what he saw. It's funny how I could not remember how his face looked like, but I could read his expression easily, knew what he felt in that moment. Like a half-formed memory, a dream with missing pieces I could recount clear as day. Then, the machine began to slow. The tear began to shrink. The benefactor demanded to know what was going on, and it was made abundantly clear what was causing the machine to fail when the girl on the ground released a death rattle, gurgling blood as the last of her life faded away. And in a desperate moment, the benefactor plunged his hand into the tear and cast a spell I could not hear for the roaring in my ears. I watched the portal bigger than any one elder could ever conjure up, open right then and there, and watched as hundreds of vessels of wood and meat fell as the magic was drained out of them. Life forces that powered them all siphoned through, rushing toward the tear where the benefactor intercepted them. Hundreds of lives, his to claim, just as Sovard had done, setting his great fire so many years ago, mere nights before he disappeared. I wonder now if that had been his plan all along. I wonder now how it was that he did not know how to activate his own machine. I fear that this was the moment the benefactor truly became unmatched. Which is why we tried to replicate the process. Though, you can see how that turned out. Never quite got it to work that way again. I would have studied the machine more, but after our little war... I no longer knew how to find it. Somehow, the benefactor had hidden it away, where not even we could locate it. In the end, without an army or the ally we had taken from them, the puppet master surrendered, faced like a doll, unmoved when they raised their hands, gave a dancer's bow like the curtain call of a ballet. I was there for that moment, with the benefactor opening a door for us to pass through thrumming with power even he seemed bemused by. Giuliano, still bloodied, almost, identical to how he looks today, carried the body of the little girl that aided Drosselmeyer in their war, presented her body with more respect than one would expect from her murderer. I watched that doll's face crack, crushed by a sudden grief, collapsing to the bloody ground beside the dead girl, cradling her in their arms. The benefactor spoke soothing words, said they could live if they provided aid to his cause, served under him as Richard Henry did. Their power and knowledge were valuable, and though the danger was great, their worth was greater. In response, Drosselmeyer gave a grin so wide it was nightmarish, and their eyes began to bleed. And the puppet master was no more. Later, I would find out from a tired Richard Henry that they had been a surgeon in life, a neurosurgeon. And it was that knowledge that allowed them to craft a spell that burst the very vessels in their brain in rapid succession, in exact and deadly fashion. If they could do that all along, I wonder why they didn't do so from the beginning, to their enemies. My personal theory is that they were... putting on a show. A dance, where they were the lead and knew every step, and we were stumbling, strung along to their rhythm. 
If it wasn't for Giuliano, I expect they would have wiped us elders out long ago. Once upon a time, there was a princess. But you see, she was not born a princess. She was born common, with common parents, and a common life, and not very much at all to look forward to every day. But she knew she was special. She could hear the whispers in the trees, sent magic in the air. Though she could not see them, she knew the fairies played in rings of fungi and flowers in the outskirts of a quaint little town, and she knew that great wolves and great elks with antlers like treetops wandered the forests and mountains. She knew the world was magic, even if no one else could see it. Even then, the princess was not alone. She had a common girl, whom she loved, with fiery red hair, and a mischievous, lopsided grin. Every day she lived a common life. The princess strove to live it happily, with the common girl she adored. Until one day, a magician came to their common little town. The magician wove great illusions, made little dolls dance, and though they had great power, they chose to make the children laugh. The princess asked the magician to teach her spells, and the magician agreed. But they made her promise to come visit every day, for they were a lonely magician with no children at all to call their own. And every day, the princess came to visit, and the magician taught her brilliant spells. The first was a spell of dreams, which guided people to dance and play. The second was a spell of memory, to know what it was that others knew. And the third, was a spell of life, where the immortal soul was housed in the immortal body, and come to live forever. All these gifts were so precious to the princess, that she asked what she could give the magician in turn, and the magician refused any gifts, telling the princess that time spent with her was gift enough for them and that all they wished for was to dance with the princess and teach her all they knew. But the princess persisted. I could be your wife, she said, and the magician refused. I could be your servant, she said, and the magician refused. And one day, when the princess came home, her common parents questioned her. Why was she always gone? 
when she could be tending the house. Why was she always late, when they had supper to eat? Why would she not aid them, when they needed her most? So she told them, she was a princess, and a magician's apprentice besides, that her magic was strong, and that the magician had given her gifts. She expected them to be happy for her. They knew she was flourishing, that she was happy, and yet, her jealous, thoughtless, commoner parents could not accept that. So they locked her away in her room, bidding her never to return to the magician's house. With the spell of dreams, the princess was able to flee. She ran right to the magician's door, and cried of these injustices. Her commoner parents forced her to endure. And she made her last offer, then and there, as the magician soothed her quiet. I could be your daughter, she said. And the magician agreed. And so the magician and their daughter, the princess, Lived happily ever after. Hmm. And so the magician and their daughter, the princess, lived happily for a time. When the magician visited her parents the next day, they used their spells to give the parents a life of dreams, preserving their memories and bodies that would never get sick or die. And so grateful were her commoner parents that they did everything she asked for. When others began to frighten her, or threaten her, or defy her, the princess gave them the same gifts, dreams, memories, Everlasting life. And so grateful were they that they did everything she asked for. And all was well. Perfect. For a time. But one night, the princess had a dream. A world just over the rainbow calling her, a place where she could live in magic forever, with her magician parent and her beloved red-haired common girl by her side. And when she awoke, she knew she could bring her common town to a place of everlasting dreams, if only she made sure to give them all Everlasting life. 
and so they began to give their gifts to all in the town. And though some were enraged, not knowing what a blessing it was, they were nigh unhindered in their task. Their perfect, everlasting town was nearly ready. But then, but then, One day, one day, the princess's commoner girl went on a journey, promising to return in three days' time. On the same day, the magician came home looking worried. All the magic, they said, has attracted a faceless one who comes to take away our home. And so they finish providing their gifts to the town, all but one, the red-headed commoner girl, who had yet to come home. When she returned, the princess is overjoyed. Just in time, too, the magician said. The faceless one was nearly upon them, and they had to make their way to their new home. But then, but then, as they made their way to their new home, the princess could not find her commoner girl. Though she searched and searched, and cried and begged and pleaded, she could not find a hint of her red hair, or her lopsided grin. And though she turned back, all she found was a town in burning ruins. For the faceless one had come, and turned her common home into ash with spells of fire. And though she had dreamed of it, and though she had striven for it, and though she lamented her common life for so long, she realized that without her beloved common girl by her side, it was all for naught. And so the princess spoke to her magician parent of her grief and loss, and she asked for one more gift. A war, a noble battle, to fight in honor of her beloved common girl. And in their love for their princess daughter, the magician went to war with the faceless one. Perhaps in another life, they would have lived in that everlasting land. Perhaps in another life. The princess would have had her beautiful common girl, made her a princess too. But in this life, the princess had given all others the gift of everlasting life. But not herself. And the princess and the magician died. Bathed in blood.
in a land devoid of the magic she dreamed of. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Hey everyone, this is Reg Helly, co-creator and co-producer of Hainai. Hainai is a podcast produced by Motsi Dapul, Yoye Halago, and me, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. Today's episode was written and directed by Motsi Dapul, who also plays the role of Elaine, the journalist, and the storyteller. The role of Vanessa was played by Maya Dapul. To help support the production of Hainai, you can buy us a milk tea at coffee or subscribe to our Coffee Gold at coffee.com slash hainaipod. That's ko-fi.com slash hainaipod. Or you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash hainaipod. Speaking of Patreon, shout out once again to all our patrons, Billy Atienza, Victoria Goodwin, Nicole, Burley Forty, Cinadone, Cecil, Rhea Campbell, Malaya Light, Robbie, Rebecca Mad Gastronomer, Disc Monde, Jordanos Belete, and Heather Blair. You guys are absolutely fabulous for continuing to support our little old podcast. Also, don't forget to check out official Hainai merchandise on our Redbubble store at redbubble.com slash people slash Hainaipod. Hainai is available on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We're aiming to reach 1,000 YouTube subscribers by the end of the year, so it would really mean a lot if you hit that subscribe button on youtube.com slash Hainaipod. And now for some special news, Hainai will be hitting the 2022 Toronto Comics Arts Festival. TCAF for short. Come over and hang out with Motsi, check out and buy some Hainai merchandise, and overall just have a good time with us. The Hainai table will be at TCAF on June 18, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and June 19, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We'll post more details about it soon, so don't forget to follow us on our official blog, hainaipod.tumblr.com, for more news and updates. And also follow us on our socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Hainaipod. Leave a rating and review when you check us out. And with that, thank you, we love you, and hanggang sa muli.